understanding. I invite you to hear this morning from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, starting in verse 11, reading to verse 16. Let us hear the word of the Lord. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Well, I'm Tom Ashbrook, and I thank you for uh, inviting Charlotte and me here today to share in the beginnings of the worship of the, of the history of this great congregation. Um, the committee that planned all this uh, asked me and probably your other speakers to uh, speak on the fourth chapter of Ephesians, and particularly focusing in on the, uh, the, the 15th verse, which talks about growing in Christ. And that couldn't fit more my story. So what I'm going to do is share some about my own story of, of growing and, and uh, maybe a word for the congregation as well. So as we begin, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for planting this congregation 50 years ago. We thank you, Lord, for the dreams and visions that you had for all the people that you would bless here, uh, for the leaders that you've brought, for the lives you've changed, for uh, the people who now populate heaven uh, because this congregation is here and has been faithful to you over these years. We ask now, Holy Spirit, that you fill your word as I, as I share from my own heart, uh, from your scriptures as we listen, uh, that Lord, we uh, intentionally trust you, all the things that are going on in our lives around us, uh, that we might be fully present to you and, and allow you, Holy Spirit, to be our teacher in and through and around all that I share today. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, a little bit about me and my story and journey and how it intersects with grace. Um, I didn't grow up in a Christian family at all. Um, never went to church. My parents said uh, that a Christian was, a, uh, they believed that a, a Christian was a reasonably nice person, uh, if not judgmental, you know, but that you certainly didn't have to go to church to be a Christian, and that's sort of the way I grew up. Um, I really believed the American dream that if you worked hard, did the best you could, everything would turn out all right. And by my junior year in college at Arizona State, I had proven to myself at least that that wasn't true. Um, and uh, lots, not terrible, awful things, but enough for me. My dad had Parkinson's disease, had turned to alcohol, my family had been destroyed. Uh, so at a junior at Arizona State, I went to see a college professor. 
and just uh, kind of the end of my rope and uh, went over to his house on a Sunday afternoon and he shared uh, the gospel with me uh, in a way I'd never heard before. And Jesus became real in my life over, over a period of time. And uh, in those early uh, last years of college, met my wife Charlotte there. And we uh, really developed a, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ through, uh, through his ministry to me. Charlotte and I came to Southern California where I went to work for what was Douglas Aircraft at the time. Later became McDonnell Douglas. I worked in the commercial aircraft division in Long Beach. And we lived in Corona Del Mar and commuted and then Costa Mesa, finally Huntington Beach. And uh, first church experience, again, I did not growing up church. I became a Lutheran because it was the nearest one to my dormitory at the time. And, uh, and this college professor, I wasn't into religion or anything. And so when he challenged me to give my life, trust God as the boss, he said it. I said, well, I'm not going to promise to quit drinking or swearing or smoking. And he said, I didn't say anything about that. And I said, I won't promise to, I wouldn't promise to read the Bible or go to church. He said, I didn't say anything about that either. And I said, well, I can't tell you that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and all that stuff's true. And he said, that's all right. You got to start someplace. <laughs> and I ended up on my knees with him in his living room. And so the Lutheran church was a nice place for me. They didn't ask me if I drank, swear, smoked. Uh, uh, they actually didn't ask me if I knew Jesus. Uh, and so it was a good place for me to sit and just kind of listen to the gospel uh, preached and allow it to permeate my life. And it was some months later before I realized that I did believe Jesus uh, was in fact the Son of God and the Savior of my soul. And, and some months later that I did come to believe that this is in fact the Word of God written uh, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, both in its writing and its reading. And so we went to a small Lutheran church, uh, I won't tell you the one, but uh, south of here away is Charlotte and I, and it was really a difficult experience. I'd been brought up in this more evangelical kind of setting and uh, a lot of stuff from the Bible, and uh, I'm not sure we were thrown out of the church exactly, but it, it was, uh, you know... I wanted to teach, I ended up teaching the high school Sunday school class, and I really wanted to use the gospel of John, and the pastor called me to a church council meeting and pointed out that the gospel of John is not Lutheran, and uh, that I was to use the LCA Sunday school material and so on, so we, uh, I didn't think I'd ever find another Lutheran church. But Charlotte and I were into the early small group movement, if somebody, any of you here remember that, Faith at Work, uh, and somebody had said that uh, th there was a Lutheran pastor, uh, Bob Larson, that was planning a new church in Huntington Beach, and that he was into small groups and thought, I'd thought we'd like him. So we showed up here and met Bob Larson and just kind of fell in love with this congregation and its warm, uh, evangelical, uh, Christ-centered presence. Uh, we got, as they were sharing earlier, everybody was put to work right away, and we ended up uh, working with high school kids again, some from here, some from the earlier church we were in. And again, being a converted Christian, I, whether somebody, there are two passions that God laid on my heart in my upbringing. One is that I think I came to church uh, a number of different times with friends growing up. I mean, we, our family didn't go, but I came. And I think um, I never heard the gospel until my college professor's living room. 
and so I've got this passion in me that was born out of my own growing up and beginnings in the faith. One is that when people feel a need for something beyond themselves, call it God, they show up in a church of some sort. And in a lot of our churches, I think what happened to me is we find religion. You know, there's a difference. And so because we don't know that, well, maybe this isn't the right church, we can't distinguish that, we, we leave and say, well, maybe what I was looking for really isn't God at all. So I've got a passion that when people come to church, uh, they experience Jesus there. Because our hearts yearn for him, our hearts long for him, whether we can name it or know it or not. And so when we experience Jesus in one another and share that with people, well, we came here and that's, that's what we experienced. I took a group of kids from this church uh, uh, on a retreat once and uh, early in those early years and uh, talking about relationship with Jesus. And these kids, a lot of them were sort of, well, I don't know, and you know, how can you prove, and so on. So like kids do at that age, that's part of the early types of growing, you know. Doubt's the flip side of faith, right? Unless you've doubted something, you can't really believe it fully. And so these kids were in the midst of that. So on sort of a, a, a whim, I uh, challenged these kids to uh, a 30-day Christian experiment. And I said, all right, why don't you just run an experiment? God's real, prove it to yourself. If he's not, you better find it out right now. And so they were up for that kind of thing. And so why don't you commit as much of yourself as you can to as much of God and Jesus as you can understand for 30 days, no strings attached, no promises, nothing. Well, when I realized the retreat, I, I, when we left, I realized I haven't done the Lutheran thing. You know, we don't do that in the Lutheran church. And so I, I got back and I, I very hesitantly told Bob Larson about, about what I had done, you know, kind of expecting this, ah, you know. And he said, you know, that's, that's wonderful, Tom. I've been praying for somebody who could challenge our kids in that way. And he said... He said, well, you said that you wouldn't hold them to anything, but would it be all right if I gave those kids a Bible? And he did. And in that old church, some weeks later, we had all those kids sitting on the chancel steps, you know, right up here, passing the microphone around. And each one of them shared how Jesus had made himself known to them in some unique and particular way and how they were discovering uh, the presence of Jesus in their lives. And Bob's encouragement to me, and it just was something I'd never experienced before. He said to me once, he said, Tom, my, my call is not to build a church, but to help you discover your ministry and live it out in the places where you live and work. And at that point, it was McDonnell Douglas. And anything I can do to help you live that out faithfully, I want to do. Well, one of the crises in my lives, uh, and I'll just go quickly, was I realized I, I wasn't a very good engineer and I really didn't want to be one. And, uh, <laughs> but there was nothing else to do. And so I went back, to, I went to USC, got a master's degree in systems management and worked in the uh, configuration management system of the DC-10 for those of you who are aerospace types. And uh, God really began to tug on my heart. And 
I knew I wanted to somehow spend uh, more time working with people and less time with things. And, and, but Charlotte had said to me a long time ago, I never want to be married to a, a doctor or a minister because they don't have any time for their families. And so I, I really thought I would like to get a PhD in management and teach and that would, uh, that would give me more time to work with young people and so on. And one day Charlotte comes up to me out of the blue and says, I gotta tell you something. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, well, I've decided that I, I've learned to trust you enough as a husband and a father, uh, no matter what your profession was. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? She said, well, even if you were a pastor. <laughs> and I said, well, is that what you think I ought to do? And she said, well, not necessarily, but I had that thought and I just thought I ought to tell you that. So I began to think about that and I first person I talked about it was Bob Larson, the pastor here, and he kind of frowned at me and he said, well, Tom, you know you don't have to be a pastor to be a minister, right? What you're doing right where you are is maybe what Jesus wants you to do. But if you're convinced that's what God's telling you to do, I'll, I'll support you in that way. And, and he did. Ultimately, uh, this congregation supported us. I think it was uh, a full $500 a year uh, toward our seminary scholarship. That was a lot of money in those days. Uh, he pointed to me a professor uh, at a seminary who helped mentor me and so on. Well, so I graduated, served a number of different parishes, but in talking about this business of growing up in Christ from our passage, the question really hit me from the first time. This is happening all along, obviously, and I'm now pastoring in Sandy, Utah, in a suburb of Salt Lake City, and in a medium-sized multiple-staff church that is growing. About a third of our congregation were converted Mormons. We had a large youth program. It was a way we reached out into the Mormon community. And after I'd been pastoring there several years, I stumbled into a, a Catholic monastery up in the mountains above Ogden, Utah. And I just went there on retreat. Uh, and I didn't go on there to retreat, retreat. Uh, being the firstborn son of an alcoholic father, I'm pretty driven, pretty task-oriented, pretty much a workaholic. I went on retreat to prepare my sermons, outlines, and my teaching studies, and so on, right? And asked to, uh, to worship with these monks, not realizing that they go to church seven times a day, and that, <laughs> and that it starts at 3.30 in the morning, and you know, so I... And they put me next to this monk uh, to kind of show me when to stand up and sit down and turn this way and that way. And I didn't know anything about monasteries. And, uh, you know, I knew what, how Lutherans disagreed with Catholics on what issues, but that was about it. And this was a Trappist, is a Trappist monastery, and their vocation is prayer. And so they farmed 1,500 acres up in the mountains, uh, in this mountain valley above Ogden, Utah. And, but their whole life was not only going to church seven times a day, but organizing their, their farming routines so that they talk to one another as little as possible and can spend that time in prayer. Well, to be honest, my first reaction is, what a waste of time. <laughs> I mean... Here the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and these guys are just up there praying piously all the time. And I, but I got to know this monk sitting next to me. His name's Brother Boniface. Um, 
he was ancient in those when I met him. I think he was 61 or two. And uh, <laughs> he, he uh, the skinny as a rail guy, hadn't, hadn't actually, had not spoken for, for uh, 20 years. I mean, the this, this silence. Uh, they use sign language to talk to each other about doing this or that. And so I got to meet him and would get to know him. And I went back another time and another time and another time. And finally I asked him, so, okay, you guys, uh, you guys spend all this time in, in prayer. Uh, what do you say to God uh, in all that time? And he looked, stopped, and looked at me kind of funny. He said, well, you know, we don't say very much to God. We, we mostly listen. Because if we're not listening, we don't know what to say to him when it's time to say something to him. Amen. Well, I, I'm not sure I'd ever heard anybody talk like that. And I pondered that. And another time, we're talking, and I've got this question. And you see, my prayer life was a little different. All my praying was talking to God, Right? I mean, first of all, I told him what the problem was if he didn't know. Uh, then I told him how to fix it and when, uh, as if he didn't know. And then I told him to, pre you, you, you know, the, the long prayer list. You know, somebody's having surgery, you start with that person, peace and healing. Then you start with the doctor and work your down to the nurse anesthetist. And, you know, so God, you know, he, he's got to know how to do this. And so I told God, my prayer life was telling God how to run the universe. And... Uh, so I asked Boniface, you know, this, this question began to form in me, this prayer life. And I, I could, Boniface was one of these characters that I could feel the love of Jesus in. I mean, sitting next to him in church, I could palpably feel the love of Jesus in this man. So that there was an authenticity about him and the life of the community in which they lived. All it was very foreign to me, I could see that. So I asked him once, I said, well, okay, now help me out. You spend all this time listening to God. How do you hear him? I mean, do you hear a voice out loud? Do you have an impression in your mind? Does something jump off at you at the page of Scripture? Uh, what is it? And again, he looked at me kind of quizzically and said, well, those things do happen and can happen, but... Mostly, we just spend so much time with Jesus that we learn to intuit his heart. Now, that stopped me. I don't think I'd ever heard anybody talk that way. If you'd have asked me if I was a mature Christian, I would have said, well, duh, I'm the pastor of a Lutheran church, for after all, that's growing and su successful and so on. And, but I began to be faced with the fact that here was a man and a community of people that had a relation with God and an intimacy with Jesus Christ that, that I had not yet experienced. Now, again, I prayed a lot. I believed a lot. Jesus is a, a, always, from the very beginning, was a very experiential person for me and in my life. But my prayers were about getting things done, and my family, my life, my kids, my, uh, my church, the world, it's about getting the things that needed to be accomplished done, and intuiting the heart of God was about as 
far from my experience. I had no idea what that meant. And now looking, you know, at this passage, I realized that I had read and preached on probably hundreds of times these verses we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. I had no idea what it meant to grow up in Christ beyond the early stages of becoming a Christian. Now, I knew what discipleship was about. That's what happens with new believers like I was and with people that joined our church out of the Mormon background, with new believers. With, I knew what discipleship was like with kids. We, we invested a lot in growth and discipleship and learning the Bible, getting into the Word, developing Christian community, discovering your gifts for ministry, going to work for God. But what did growing in Christ look like beyond that? What did growing up and maturing in Christ mean for people like you and me, people who probably aren't beginners in this journey, aren't just starting it? If we have a lifelong journey of growing in Christ, of maturing, I mean, probably if I ask for a raise of hand, who's very mature here, got it made, you know, right in their faith? None of us would raise our hands, right? We know we don't, we're not perfect, certainly, and, and, but what does it mean? And I began to go on a quest in my own life to, to, to begin to, I never heard it talked about. And I began to ask other pastors and friends and evangelists, uh, people I knew, well, well, talk to me about discipleship and, and personal spiritual growth. And they'd say, well, you've got, you got to read the Bible, and you've got to pray, and um, you've got to work for God. And then there'd be this sort of long pause because they hadn't really thought about that for themselves either. And then I'd ask the question, well, does that still work for you? Do you find that exciting and motivating in your life and growing in your life the way it did in the earlier years of your Christian growth? And then there's another long silence. And I began to find, as I asked in my own congregation and in Christian leaders and maturing believers, that there were a lot of people that had had this is that all there is syndrome right you ever felt that way okay so i believe i go to church i give some money i help out i pray is that all there is and that they were just like me had never really thought about what it meant to grow up and mature in Christ. I began to look and find that a lot of us, myself, so if growing up, what's the goal? So if we ask, you know, the kids over in the Sunday school class and say, well, what's, what's the growing up goal for them? We'd say, well, it's to become a mature adult, right? I mean, they, 
that are this high now, they, they should end up about here, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Their education, we've got some idea what that looks like. And I found that among us as Christian maturing believers, uh, we didn't know what the goal was. We already believe, we have faith in Christ, in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We know we're forgiven for our sins and that heaven is available to us. That's good. Well, what's the goal of our growth? And I found some people who would say, well, it's, it's becoming Christ-like in character and becoming holy uh, in Christ. And that's true. There's truth to that. But is that the bottom line? Other people say, well, it's really working for God. That's the bottom line. It's, it's, it's being equipped for ministry and the gifts of ministry. And I was a charismatic Lutheran by this point, and we, seeing the, uh, the power of God being released uh, in our church. But are we really just pawns on a chessboard being moved around by God in some kingdom scheme and that's what it is? Or is it possible that the thing that we promise people in the very beginning is the goal of our Christian growth? What do we say? God loves you. And he wants a personal relationship with you through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He wants you to live as forgiven, adopted children that grow and mature in relationship with him. Until we can intuit the heart of God. Well, if that's what it is, how does it happen? I mean, what's the process? How does that, does that just sort of evolve? And, and so I began to study and look at that. And, and uh, finally, yeah, I went back to school and uh, but studied Teresa Vavilov. That she She's got these seven stages of, of spiritual growth. And she said, well, you know, in you know, 1500 Spain, okay, uh, during the time of the Inquisitions, and tell you a lot about Teresa, but she was asked to describe this process of spiritual growth clear, clear back then. And she said, well, the first part of it is sort of like growing up as a person, maturing as an adult. But she said, the really exciting part of it is like falling in love and getting married. Huh? So she says, so we spent a lot of years working for God. We, we, we begin uh, working for him and, and, and apprenticing him, working alongside in the church, in, in the marketplace, in the places we do. And she says, then he begins to, to mess with us. What? She says, he begins to reveal himself to us in subtle ways. And we begin to fall in love with the person of Jesus. We begin to notice him, hunger him, long for him. We still work for him, but it's, it's, it's him more than the work. And it's a subtle shift. It's the fourth in these seven stages. And she says, she says it causes a lot of people problems. 
because we, instead of volunteering for just whatever you need done, pastor, kind of thing, we begin to ask ourselves, well, Lord, what would you like me to do to express my love for you? And that causes another crisis. Because many of us haven't learned to listen to Jesus. We haven't developed a prayer time. I mean, my main prayers early in my days were on the freeway, uh, you know, from Costa Mesa to Long Beach. Uh, I'd get on the freeway, get off, not remembering any of that. Scary, totally. But I was into prayer, right? And I found that I was so busy, so on the move, that I didn't have time for God. God, I'm so busy serving you, I've got no time to spend quality time listening. But one of the hardest things in my Christian walk is to set aside time to just be with God, to love Him, not for what I could get out of Him. You know what they say, uh, the, the definition of human maturity is and as an adult? It's when we can relate to our parents as fellow adults and not for what we can get out of them. Anybody know anybody who's never matured? <laughs> <laughs> so we begin to fall in love with Jesus and then the crisis hits, how do I begin to change my life so that I can spend some time with him? and let him speak to my heart and learn to listen to his heart and then how do I serve him and so uh, so uh, in 2000 I was pastoring in Lake Oswego Oregon uh, in a church there and God spoke to me and uh, this is you know now 10-15 years after this encounter with Brother Boniface and a, a long relationship with him uh, God said, I'd, I'd like you to start, Tom, I want you to start uh, an order of men and women, uh, cross-culturally, who will help the leaders of my church lead out of their love for me, rather than turning the machinery that, you know, we so often do. See, because if we can't hear the Lord, if we can't intuit his heart, we have really little other opportunity than to turn the machinery that we've learned of church life and of, of living in the world as a Christian. And God honors it. He loves us. He, he blesses it. But the joy of his heart is to give us the privilege of living in his love with such confidence and such awareness of his presence that he becomes part of everything we do. He fills and empowers our jobs, our relationships, our families. Now we're still sinners and we still struggle and that's always going to be the case. He wants us to take on a new identity as God's beloved. That's who you are, right? You're God's beloved. When somebody first said that to me, I said, yeah, but I'm so screwed up, you know. He says, that's all right. You're God's beloved. He wants to begin to change our identity so it's from that place that we can live our lives.
You're starting your 50th celebration, I think, in the midst of one of the greatest moves of the Holy Spirit, certainly in our time and maybe in Christian history. And that's the call of Jesus to men and women to himself. We've always read that God is a jealous God, and I think he's led us for, for centuries and centuries do church. And he's used it, and he's spread the gospel all over the world. But we're finding, as I lead a missionary organization called Imago Christi, Image of Christ, uh, that works with pastors and missionaries in all different parts of the world. I was just last week with Mission Aviation Fellowship, you saw, uh, in Boise, Idaho, with, with their team doing some teaching. And uh, God, Christian leaders all over the world feel themselves called to the heart of Jesus to follow him specifically, not generally. Remember when the question was, what would Jesus do? We, we put little banners. It's the wrong question. How would we possibly know what Jesus would do? Now, he wouldn't do anything unkind, mean, hurtful. I mean, we know he, you know, he's, he loves The question Jesus asked is, what do I see my Father doing? Jesus said, I can't do anything except that the Father is already doing it. So in the intricacies of our lives, in what's going to happen this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow, the decisions we make about life Jesus wants to mature us and grow us into a place that what we intuit will be in accordance with his will and a journey of fellowship and love with him. And so we see in mainline underground church pastors in China a whole turn to wanting to, to discover of this business about intimacy with Jesus, about spiritual growth. We're, we're seeing in Africa and, and all around pastors reading books and studying Scripture from a new way. How can I know not just about Jesus, but how can I know Him present here, now, and today? And I think we live in a time where we're going to see the face of the church shift and change in a vibrant and a wonderful way. As people like you and me, sinners, screwed up, simply learn to walk with Jesus and intuit his heart. Amen.